Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I am today, normally there's a brilliant producer, there isn't today. So if this is a technical nightmare, that's the that's why we're late. People are asking, why are you late? This is, I mean, the left normally, that's our shtick. That's the one thing we excel at. Winning political power and establishing a social society hasn't gone as, as hoped. But being late for meetings, broadcasts, chef's kisses, we've got that down to a T. So that's our one skill. Uh, we've got a great show today, and what we're going to talk about is, of course, the um, fascinating implosion of GB News. Now, GB News, as people are going to start, actually, let me just start at the beginning. I mean, some people will go, Owen, if it's such a joke, if it's so irrelevant, if it's imploded, why spend any time talking about it? Who cares? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I get that. But I suppose the counterpoint is it is quite funny. Um, and these are dark, dark times, uh, a world of, of quite a lot of horror and misery. Some will go, well, it's because, you know, things aren't going so well for the left, so you have to find anything. Fine, sure. Happy to confess to that. There is more of a serious point, though. I mean, it is true, of course, GB News did establish itself uh, in order to smash the woke karate and obviously people like myself. Um, so I suppose I, I should therefore be able to enjoy it not succeeding in its initially original mission aim if you like but let's but the, the wider point is what this says about the right and their approaches to so-called cancel culture and free speech and so on and about the modern right now let's just quickly just have a quick overview of how things have gone for gb news so they were quite happy with their initial launch audience figures um i suppose the problem with that is people like myself watched it and we've already talked about that on this show, but I was I didn't have the best intentions of that channel at heart, and I watched it. So I, you have to include people like myself in those in those figures. But but the only way was down. And when we say the only way is down, it, it that, that's just a just a fact. I mean, they're um, over the course of the fourteenth to the twentieth of June, they had two point six million viewers. That's as in in total two point six million people at some point during the week watched TV news. The next week, it went from 2.6 million to one point, less than 1.9 million. And then the week after that to 1.3 million. So it went from 0 0.6, 0.49% of audience share down to 0.3%. So you can see it's it's spiraling there. Um, it turns out actually that technically, its audience for many of its shows is zero. There are now far more people. The audience is going up. 
and, and our last show was 55,000 people on GB News. That's now more, more people watch my last show on GB News than are watching any show on GB News. So that just gives a... And I don't have a multi-million pound budget and hundreds of people working for me and a whole cast of presenters. So you have to... You have to put that in context. So they they, they had a lot of money and resources, and they're, they're in a kind of death spiral. Many of their uh, shows technically have no viewers. Um, Andrew Neil, of course, the uh, the front, the, the face of GB News, the launch kind of the guy behind it, let's just say it as it is, he disappeared on holiday two weeks after its launch. Um, several executives, senior figures are now quitting en masse. Um, the technical issues, I originally tweeted that they had worse technical issues than the average student production. No, I said they had the same as a student production. Lots of people behind student productions got in touch. Understandably, they were very angry and very upset about that. And I, I think that's reasonable because uh, they, uh, I mean, they have better production values than 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 GB News. So I would say, you know, I would like to apologize to all student productions across the country who have infinitely better production values. But but also, I suppose the reason I wanted to talk about that is what happened was, um, of course, GB News was founded to defend free speech, to take on cancel culture, that people are being hounded out of their jobs by the, by the offended mob. And, and the problem with that was Guito Harry, who is now being portrayed as a radical Marxist, used to be Boris Johnson's communications spin doctor, um, uh, works for the Murdoch Empire, etc. Not not the classic revolutionary Marxist, I have to say, in terms of his CV. But anyway, he took the knee as a kind of look. This is actually just an anti-racism gesture. We shouldn't get, you know, took the knee on air. He, he literally got cancelled because uh, the uh, audience of GB News was so angry. They they were so angry. They said, "We're not going to watch this anymore." And given their audience is already collapsing, that, that was an existential threat. As I understand it, the way they think they're going to make money is to get super subscribers who pay lots of money. Uh, and so they have to be super fans. And those super fans were angry because they are very right wing. And they were just offended. They were I mean, that's what they were. They were offended by a uh, presenter taking the knee on on and, and having to watch it. Uh, and so in they bowed to the censorious mob by cancelling him. He's got taken off air and they issued an apology saying this was a violation of their editorial standards following a tweet which said explicitly uh, that this uh, that that there was no editorial position uh, on the show uh, when it came to taking the knee. So it didn't quite make any sense. Uh, Nigel Farage has just joined. People are saying that's the, oh, here we go. As Foxy says, that is the first recorded event of a rat boarding a sinking ship. Now, that's enough for me because that's the just, I, I'm obviously having, people are saying I'm obsessed with this a little bit, actually. Yeah, it is quite funny. And this has been a difficult year and a half for all of us. Um, and uh, we're going to talk now to our brilliant guest. Before I do, just a bit of housekeeping. As you can see, people are supporting the show using Super Chat. You can put questions to our guests, such as Tajish Cantwell here. Being late is a learned response of colonized oppressed people as a form of passive resistance. So I'm be proud of your lateness. Stand uh, strong, brother. I didn't realize it was anti-colonial resistance. Might be appropriation in my case, but I'll take that. Uh, so you can support the show, put questions to the guests using Super Chat, uh, which I will, I, will, I will thank people at the end. I need to take notes myself because I do not have a producer today. Um, but as well as that, if you're not watching on YouTube, please click through to YouTube so you can just support the show just by doing that. Press the like because that helps the algorithm. More people will watch it. Also, do press subscribe. 
uh, that also will mean you'll get the videos live. Um, in terms of uh, um, the documentaries and the show and the producers normally here and all the people, well, just all the people who keep this channel smoothly operating in a way it isn't as much today because of their absence. But normally they do an incredible job. But do the professional documentaries. We've done a whole range of topics. We're about to do one on who owns Britain, about land, about um, I don't know if people saw the Sky Pool in in London and what that said about just huge inequalities of wealth and power, but also in the countryside. So we're going to look at who owns Britain. That's our next documentary, which people on Patreon asked us to do. Patreon.com forward slash Owen Joe's 84. You can support the show. We can do more documentaries with your support. As you can see, I mean, we can take on GB News by having shows which are watched by more people than GB News without having hedge fund managers in uh, in other countries funding us. So that's all done by you. So we really appreciate that. That is enough from me. Uh, I appreciate it, all those support. And as I said, I will thank people at the end. I'm going to bring in now the brilliant Zoe Williams and Hussein Kazvani. And they are they don't need an introduction because they're both fantastic. Uh, maybe I'll let them introduce them if they want to. I don't know if they really, they're really fussed. Um, you need to listen to his. Uh, and, uh, am I actually Zoe is a brilliant yeah. colleague of mine. At no, the you... <laughs> well, okay, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. I don't, don't like being introduced either. But actually, to be fair, Hussein's got a podcast, so actually, it makes sense for you to plug the podcast actually at the beginning. Oh, like now? Uh, yeah, yeah. You no, well, I say to... so. Yeah, be you that should, one you on my face because I'm quite hot. Go on. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I am a co-host on the podcast trash future you had my uh you had my co-host uh riley on relatively recently i think to talk about green cell um so uh yeah there's a bunch of us we do a show uh every week called trash future it's all about um it's all about how we live in society and how it's uh crumbling uh really and there's very little that we can really do about it without like meaningful collective action um and then over the lockdown i started a spin-off show called uh, Ten Thousand posts which is a show about internet culture and how aspects of internet culture like have fed into the political discourse in ways that we don't really kind of consider until it's too late which is sort of where like the gb news stuff comes in anyway fantastic so we've got two i'd say premium experts i want to ask one thing you've got to be honest you've got to be honest at the outset did you expect gb news to be as disastrous as it turned out to be who wants to kick off on that one I don't mind kicking off on that one. I mean, I because I we were all kind of exercised about it before it before it launched in the sense of like the kind of foxification of the British news environment, and it seemed quite important, particularly because at that time Paul Dacre was slated as chief executive of Ofsted, and the, the, a kind of general conservative interference with broadcast impartiality seemed to be a part of the program. Um, and I think, I, and I was a bit blasé actually. I, I, I didn't have, I had no idea that it would be so beset by technical issues. It was just really, that was just really weird. I thought they had a lot of money, um, but it's of, often you kind of over overestimate the competence of rich people. But that's another story. Um, I did. I genuinely thought it would be better. You know, like better broadcasting. I genuinely thought. Andrew Neil, whatever you think of him, is a really experienced broadcaster. And he is also, he's quite pompous and thundering about it, but he also does believe in accuracy. And it's hard to get, it's hard to get up ahead of steam if you're going to be accurate with the kind of nonsense that they ended up peddling, you know. And sure enough, they did sacrifice 
the accuracy for the polemic. Um, so I was quite surprised about that. One thing I always predicted was that nobody would watch it um, because, you know, it's it's a very different... A, we have a different... If you look at um, speech radio, the kind of talk radio, which is the sort of basically for brevity, the hate channel, where it's kind of Julia Hartley Brewer, it's Mark Dolan, it's all those people who kind of go on about masks all the time and say their their freedom is being is being infringed, etc., is much much less popular than LBC, and LBC is 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 a much more pluralistic, actually quite humane. Even the right wing on LBC are quite humane and have a have quite a different approach you know i'm thinking of people like ian dale um so i didn't think the appetite for right-wing hate speech was that strong in this country to begin with and tv is a very different experience to radio so you can people will listen to stuff as they're doing other things whereas tv requires a commitment and i just didn't think that there was interest enough for kind of rolling culture war and 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 so yeah in that sense i was completely right <laughs> what do you think what do you think you saying? Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of initially conceived of it as being uh, like a YouTube channel, but with car insurance, like supported by car insurance advertising, um, in the sense that it was very obvious from the outset that, that that was what they were drawing on. So a lot of their kind of hosts that they had brought in were people who kind of had these viral moments on uh, on Twitter or on YouTube. Um, you know, you have people like Andrew Doyle, who like uh, is a professional poster, like someone who runs multiple like posting accounts. Um, I think it was very clear that they took inspiration from the fact that like places like Talk Radio and LBC were putting out um, video clips on Twitter that were getting a lot of numbers and shares and like having a lot of influence or having like a disproportionate amount of influence in broader political discourse. So I guess the idea that Andrew Neil and um, the kind of the founders of GB News came up with is like, what if we made a channel which produced this type of content all the time? And like this idea of every day uh, a monologue would go viral and it would set the agenda. And I think that was the dream. But I think like a mixture of really bad and very rushed production values, hiring a lot of amateur hosts to kind of be, uh, to lead the show and just like a very haphazard approach. And I think, and really, I think what it comes down to is something that I think has plagued the channel um, throughout its entire existence, which is the fact that it's really playing second fiddle to Twitter discourse. It's really struggling mm -hmm. to catch up. Um, so they're not really setting agenda. They're really they're they're trying to follow an agenda, but they're also trying to keep an air of respectability. That I think that if they want to be a successful channel, they like have to they they can't like they have to like really lean into the real unhinged elements of like digital dis like digital political discourse. On the Andrew Neil, I'm interested in this actually because maybe. I mean, look, I mean, Zoe, me and Andrew Neil have not had the easiest of relationships. So I'll just give that as a little caveat. Once ended a show where when the camera stopped rolling, when I went through his record at The Spectator, he started screaming at me. He was purple in the face. Uh, I will deal with you. I will deal with you. Uh, Liz Kendall was the uh, special guest of the day. She was staring somewhat horrified as the scene unfolded. Anyway, I suppose that what I'd say is maybe just to kind of, maybe, I, I think this is kind of the, in a sense, the point, which is Andrew Neil, didn't he get kind of conferred with this respectability because of the BBC? And actually, if we look back at his own record, actually, arguably, it should set off alarm bells. When he was editor of the Sunday Times, the Sunday Times peddled the idea that HIV did not cause AIDS. Um, he hired David Irving, the notorious Holocaust denier, to 
he did not because he supported or endorsed David Irving's views. Let me make that clear to avoid a tedious exchange in legal letters. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I wouldn't obviously hire David Irving to do my windows, let alone to do anything else. Um, he, uh, the spectator, which he's the chair of, he's like, I have no editorial responsibility. Yeah, sure, you just do nothing as chair of the spectator. You know, the spectator churns out all sorts of stuff. There's not enough Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. That was the Rod Little. Uh, once had, you know, described black savages, support uh, another article supporting Greek neo-Nazis, another article in defense of the Wehrmacht. Like, actually, the BBC gave him all this respectability, but actually, given Andrew Neil's record in terms of his people he's associated with, was it? I don't know. Is it a shock? Well, is it a shock that there was a kind of, that it was as bad as it was yeah. politically? Yeah. I mean... I think the point is because they because the two things are linked right the, the the politics of it imploded really really fast but also the sheer incompetence of it um and and this is quite interesting it's really hard to be in, to kind of drum up your own sense of outrage and kind of perpetual excitement without any without anything coming at you so and and that I think was the kind of fundamental miscalculation of it and and you you know you describe Andrew Neil's greatest hits but he those were all, those were all kind of conducted in an environment where there was something coming at him so you know in that kind of context about HIV and AIDS he still felt like he was taking the contrarian position and he was and he was taking the contrarian position and and you know Rob Little is the same what the problem was in GB News was that they weren't what were they contrary you know nobody they didn't have anything they were trying to create the narrative that they claimed was an oppression narrative. You know, they claimed they were being oppressed and this was them fighting back. But what was oppressing them? And I think that, that's what really undid them. And that, in a sense, was, was what kind of undermined them at the level of, you know, actually knowing how to do it. Sorry, is that a bit complicated? Am, am I making no, that sense? No, that makes sense. Sorry, I was just worried about the connection <laughs> for a little bit. I think it might, okay. be hitting your, might have been hitting your mic a bit. I don't know if that was it. Oh, maybe I'm just like, I'm just standing around in my chat. I'll just stop moving so much. And also, yeah, sorry for, I noticed no, that sorry. everybody's upset that I vaped on air and I didn't mean it. I just forgot that no, I, vape. I was on no, air. I, there's, there's no problem. <laughs> By the way, stop trying to cancel Zoe because she's vaping on air. If she wants to vape on air, she can definitely vape on air. <laughs> you um, know, that's just going to make me vape all the way through now. My only worry there is your connection just went a bit dodgy, that's all. Your connection just got like, and, a little bit. It, it's good, it's Maybe it'll improve. It'll improve. Well, well, we'll talk to. We'll talk to. I'll, I'll ask you. See, see what. See what he thinks about this. Okay. So I want to talk about what happened this week because obviously the whole mantra was that you know the whole basis, the founding principle of GB News was the censorious, easily offended mob uh, were intolerant of opinions they found offensive, and they found it so offensive that they would seek to cancel people because they were so offended at having to be exposed to views they did not like. And what we saw this week is Gito Harry, who quite literally some of the viewers are calling a radical Marxist. Gito <laughs> Harry, the former spin doctor of Boris, of Boris Johnson. Um, mm. He uh, took the knee just to make a pretty, actually innocuous, you would think, as a kind of mainstream liberal point of, well, actually, it's just an anti You don't have to endorse, but, you know, he went to a, a caveat about Black Lives Matter and uh, it caused outrage, it, it got genuine boiling fury, which GB News could not contain. And mm. they took him off air. He's very unhappy about it because 
he's briefing it's actually potentially defamatory, or his friends are, sorry, his friends are, that it's defamatory to say he was in violation of editorial standards. What does this say about the whole kind of right-wing free speech kind of cancel culture narrative? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's also like, we also need to bear in mind what happened before, which was um, that there, like after the England Euro 2020 uh, final match uh, and the racism that was targeted towards black players uh, like Saka and Marcus Rashford, um, it felt as if all like all the kind of uh, initial caveats or the initial, um, uh, not caveats isn't the right word, but the initial uh, statements about taking the knee made by uh, Priti Patel and Boris Johnson, they suddenly felt very distasteful and they felt very sour mm-hmm. and like didn't really feel like they were uh in tune with the vast majority of the country especially when they came out to uh repair the marcus uh, the, the marcus rashford mural um you know and i think there were a couple of like statements uh quotes going coming out from downing street along the lines of uh the tories have really uh they've really miscalculated the, the national mood of the country and by extension the media that have like been so influential to the current conservative project like bear in mind you know we were talking about andrew neil being um as the editor of the spectator but like chair. and how sorry, he's kind of got this air of responsibility yeah chair sorry sorry, chair, um, sorry. Yeah, but like Boris Johnson was also like probably the most influential editor of the Spectator, who is now like the prime, who is now like the prime minister. And uh, you know, if you really, and I, I think you've looked on this, looked at this in previous shows, the connection between uh, media and government is really, really um, like we don't really have to go too far to kind of notice that there are some very strong links between media and government. So. Um, yeah, like you have this like miscalculation. GB News is GB News is built on this like idea of um, you know they understand what the country is about. They understand like what working class people want, and they don't want any of the like Marxists taking the knee um, and drinking soy latte nonsense. Like you know they want you know you you, you stand and you drink Bovril. That's like that's what you do to be English. Um, so GB News are really in this mix because now. Like they've done this huge miscalculation. They've also kind of presented themselves as being not only this free speech channel, but one that is tolerant of lots of different views, right? They've made this really big deal out of like everyone has different views. We've got left wing people, we've got right wing people, um, we've got people who aren't political at all, and they just like to have a good time on daytime TV. And really, all this really, it really exposed like the kind of fragility in that narrative, which didn't really exist except like on a very superficial level. I, I think some hosts and certainly like some of the producers on that channel um, certainly kind of believe that this was just a different type of uh, news outlet. And I think maybe they might be starting to question that. But I think it exposes a much more truthful detail, which is again, GB News is running second fiddle to like Twitter discourse and this audience that they think that, that they're really, really after. And they're really like having to capitulate to the demands of this audience, which like isn't going to be coherent, right? They're going to kind of be very offended by like things that, you know, they're consuming that they didn't sign up for and like, you know, things that are offensive to them as like individuals with political ideas. So I think they're really like, this is kind of a real struggle for them because so much of their business model and so much of the reason why they exist um, have turned out to be these huge miscalculations that are going to be really hard to repair. And I think that's why we've seen this like reflection in their viewer numbers and how it's just like tanked so dramatically in such a short period of time. I mean, it's interesting that point about, you know, they, it's this kind of, we understand how the working class think. It's interesting how the right appropriated the rhetoric of class, because from the 70s onwards, they were very, you know, Margaret Thatcher said class is a communist concept. It sets people to bundle, puts people into bundles and sets them against each other. Mm. The Tories in the 70s said, 
the existence of class isn't the problem, the existence of class feeling. So they wanted to stop people thinking in those terms. Then they appropriated class to mean the working class was not defined by their relationship to their to the to the economy, but by mm. culture that yeah. they are patriotic, uh, their patriotism and their rejection of multiculturalism and their traditional values and patriotism are being done down by a woke middle class elite. Now, but interestingly, the viewing statistics before they completely imploded suggested 80% of their viewers were in the category ABC1. That is a slightly flawed category used by pollsters, but it is broadly meant to mean the middle class. So I think it's interesting because over, overwhelmingly it shut their viewers. I say overwhelming as though 10 people can... Anyway, no, that's not fair. <laughs> they don't have a large viewing base anymore, but they are overwhelmingly white, affluent, of a certain age, but they like to see themselves, I think, as downtrodden and against the elite as they define it. Mm. So what do you think about... I'm just interested, cancel culture, the way the right define free speech and cancel culture and what happened this week, I suppose. I mean, I do want to kind of underline the positive, right? Because what happened with GB News is that they they said they spoke for a silent majority and it turned out they were speaking for a very vocal minority. And that's quite an important thing. You know, it was a muster point for them. They were saying a huge number of people believe these things and feel too scared to say them. It turned out that a huge number of people didn't believe those things and weren't interested in hearing them said. And that... I, I, you know, it's worth taking, that's quite good. It's quite good that that happened. Um, and it's more than fun to watch them implode. It is, so it's, it's very like, it, it's, it's very like the football, you know, you kind of get a sudden wave of, oh, hang on a second. We're not fighting this tide of racism, xenophobia, bigotry, kind of all purpose bigotry that's desperate to kind of smash through our fragile liberal elite um, ramparts where it, it's actually been completely confected and I think the same is true of the you know the freedom of speech um, conversation the same is true of cancel culture conversation it's all confected arguments and really the dangerous moment for them is when they try and prove the, the truth of their confection and this was one of those attempts and it failed um, it, it's but I think the culture wars are kind of really interesting because the theological definition of a just war is that somebody can win it. But what would it look like if the right did win a culture war? I mean, what would it, what would that actually look like? <laughs> would, would young people not be allowed to talk anymore? Would they have to like wear collars, uh, which gave them an electric shock if they said more than a hundred words? It's, Don't give them it's, ideas, Zoe. <laughs> but it's, like, it's, it's, it's a really peculiar construct and you can see how it works like a lot of things actually it works politically in in very short kind of day-to-day -day terms but it doesn't have a long-term project and i think there's a lot about the kind of well the conservative government and their media cheerleaders that in the absence of a kind of long-term ideological um, goal their only aim is to replicate their own power for the for the day after today and that is very much what the culture wars are about. Can I replicate my power for tomorrow? And and I think, you know, bring it on, test it constantly, because I think, you know, this failed and all subsequent things will fail. On that, before I bring in um, a bit more about Twitter discourse, because I'm very interested in that, and and they're basically trying to turn Twitter beef into a, into a TV station. But is there not a downbeat analysis of this, which is... GB News is essentially in government, like they're catered for. 
because we have a very right-wing government that pursues so-called culture war as a one of its main planks of governance in most notoriously recently not most notorious but recently refusing to condemn english players being booed when they took the knee and therefore legitimizing the racism that they were subjected to in the aftermath of england's uh, narrow defeat in the finals I mean, in a sense, if this was a left-wing government or even just a vaguely left-of-centre government, maybe then there'd be this big audience because people would be like, we're being ruled by these people, oh my word. But they're not. There's like every day they're being... And also we have a very right-wing ecosystem in the media anyway. You can read the mail. You can read the sun. You can read the telegraph, the times. The times print stuff on their front pages, which turn out to be completely false about Christian children forced into Muslim foster care. Like, this is mainstream... So why do you need, you don't need a TV channel. So in a sense, is that a depressing take? He's saying like GB News is so common in its ethos. People don't need to watch it because it's so pervasive. Kind of. I mean, I think it's also one reason that justified its existence. Um, like one thing that uh, when GB News was hiring, um, like what was very interesting, or like, what was very interesting is like a lot of the people who work in their back end uh, are for people who like have formerly worked on talk radio stations or they've worked at the mail or they've worked within like different sections of this right wing ecosystem. So there's been this like pipeline uh, that has gone directly to BB, uh, to GB News that has come from these other places that were ostensibly like doing the same thing. Um, and it's also it's like one reason why GB News was very early on to kind of get their like coveted Rishi Sunak interview. Um, it's one reason why uh, they got to ask questions in Parliament uh, within like the first few weeks of their launch this is like something that even uh like established channels with bases in the uk have not been able to do like my, when i started my career as a journalist like i started working in television um and i like never got any press passes or i never got any like um pa passes into like downing street or lobby passes and stuff like that um you know so it's quite surprising but also really not unsurprising when you consider who was the person who got like this level of access uh that it's come out of this place that is it's come out of this environment where you already have this very established uh right-wing ecosystem which brings them along this question like why does gb news need to exist and for them it was very much like even the right-wing outlets that have kind of so been so influential in british politics and society they're too woke right there were like there are people who are kind of like oh yeah sky news is too woke for us so we have to go to gb news um or you know the sun like does this like one story that is like vaguely pro-diversity in a very sort of like gesturing sense and all of a sudden now like it's being taken over by marxists right so it's kind of like gb news was designed to sort of play into this fears that even the things that you're supposed to be comfortable with like actually they could be taken over by secret Marxists as well. They're everywhere. They like live under your bed. They're trying to steal your wife. Like all these things, like all these, like all this sense of paranoia, that's kind of like inside the soul of GB News. Um, and I think the Gutahari stuff is a really good example of that. When that happened, I was like looking through some of the comments just because I was just interested in how people were reacting. And there was just so much stuff that was like, oh, I, I watched GB News because I wanted to get away from this woke nonsense. Um, and, and like now it just follows me everywhere. And it's kind of like, okay, this is a very like depressing, this is a very like depressing kind of scenario that you've invented in your own in your own head. And then on that on that side subject, as like as a final point on this, I think a lot of the mistakes that GB News has made 
um, in a similar way to like mistakes that the government have made when they've kind of stoked their own culture wars, is that they're not really sure who their audience is or who they're really talking to. Effectively, what they've done is that they've invented people in their own head, believe that like they are the soul of the country and they're like making policy or doing um, making program content for them. And when it turns out that all these people like don't actually exist because human beings are much more complicated and nuanced, like that is something that they are just really struggling to understand or like struggling to understand how they get to that point. And maybe this is why they've brought back Nigel Farage, because for them, it's like, you know, instead of doing kind of cheesy and kind of cringy daytime, um, you know, daytime talk shows, why don't we bring back the old hits? Like, why don't we bring back the things that we know that we know works? I mean, my wife was stolen by a Marxist, so <laughs> I don't know if it's based in reality. Zoe, what do you think about that whole, yeah, as I've said, like, actually, it's a sign of the right's cultural hegemony that this isn't a success because it's already catered for everywhere. I mean, I think you're, you're indulging your tendency to see the downside, <laughs> is what I think. I mean, I, you know, that it's, it's really, what I'm about to say is completely not backed up by any of, by any poll anywhere, but I somehow feel it in my blood, <laughs> which is that, you know, we talk as though the, 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 the Johnson government and, and the kind of Dominic Cummings project basically has completely changed the window of acceptability. And it's now acceptable to be racist and not acceptable to be anti-racist. The Labour Party is too frightened to make a really stout case against racism because it thinks it's a vote loser. I mean, that is an extraordinary that's an extraordinary situation to just accept as true um i don't think i don't think it is true basically i don't think that i i think that there was something about the the kind of the 2019 election that tended towards we'd had this really long protracted splenetic very boring um post referendum politics and Johnson offered a chance to just walk away from politics. You know, it's like politicians are all assholes. Just walk away. Choose me and you can walk away and switch off. And I think that was quite an attractive proposition. Um, and I don't think people were voting for him as somebody who was going to, you know, shoot down migrants in the channel. I don't think people were voting for him as somebody who was going to endorse racist movements and racist ideas. Um, and I don't think they any they ever got the kind of groundswell of of support for that, the, the kind of furthest right elements of their agenda that we're now accepting as gospel. So um, I think really, you know, maybe I'm naive, but I really think the, the failure of this is a failure of something more important, which is, which is, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the agenda of the kind of, let's call it as an umbrella term, the agenda of hate is just not as attractive as people think it is. I mean, another point, <laughs> Ellie May O'Hagan, our friendly and journalist, the brilliant journalist, Ellie May O'Hagan, the point she made, actually, I thought it was quite interesting, is, like, Dan Wooten is actually the most successful show on the channel. It is relative. Mm. But he's leaned heavily into anti-lockdown mantra stuff. But the point Ellie made is actually the people watching the show who tend to be right-wing boomers are not anti-lockdown generally. Like, anti-lockdown sentiment isn't, is quite, that's been quite mm. peripheral in public opinion. And actually, if you're a Tory voting probably anti-woke if you know what woke is because most people don't know what it means anyway that's another problem um you don't you don't you listen to like you're like well i'm scared of getting covid <laughs> well that but, but i mean actually that's a really interesting thing as well right because you know 
COVID really did present the kind of hard limits to that very flaky, everything will be fine, I'm going to have my cake and eat it style of government. Because, you know, they he, he could, Johnson in the end couldn't be everybody's chum and couldn't, couldn't be, couldn't let let it rip and couldn't let it all hang out and he couldn't be the person that he thought people loved and it has been kind of catastrophic for his confidence and for his profile even though that isn't showing up yet in the way people respond to him um but you know that will show up and 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 again with the lockdown thing i said i don't know if you've been on sky or anything arguing with isabel oakshaw but it's I it, you almost feel bad for her because she's got to, she's taking this really anti-mask anti-lockdown what about all the what about all the people who've died of cancer because we only talk about covid she's taking that stance as like a as as, a, as part of her political brand and events just keep overtaking her you know it's it's, it's just and at some point events are going to kind of come closer to home and she's going to have a friend with long covid and she's going to have you know, one of her kids' school friends is going to have long COVID, and she's going to—it's—it's—it's the kind of the really brutal reality of a situation in which you need maturity being met with this kind of childishness. I think is quite tough on them all, <laughs> um, and I don't—you know—I don't think it reflects a kind of any broader kind of immature, immaturity in the population. Saying that, I want to talk more about. I mean, yeah, I agree with you there completely. I mean, but I want to go back a little bit to posters, brain, mm -hmm. um, like unpack basically because it's just it's a. I love the love the phrase. It's a great term. Yeah. Play about with it a bit. What do we mean? Just unpack it a bit, posters, brain, yeah. and how they badly <laughs> executed it, and also, yeah, I mean, I guess the kind of people I suppose they saw Andrew Neil probably. I wouldn't have half of it. You could see the people retweeting him because every time he attacked me, I would get all these people piling in on me who were like pretty grim in there. And they were of a standard type who had it then I might've looked at and thought, these people follow me. Oh, they'd watch a TV station. Uh, if I catered yeah. to their views, I don't know. What do you mean by posters brain and what? Yeah. Why is it? Yeah. I mean, posters brain um, is kind of this sort of like uh shorthand term that we use to basically describe people who are obsessed with, uh, obsessed with the internet, but obsessed with the internet in a way that it, it can get very difficult for them to, figure out what is happening online and what's happening in real life um it's sort of like this very heightened augmented experience but when it becomes your personality so sometimes that can be expressed in like lots of different forms and that's why i like started a like uh, a podcast to try explain that um because i was seeing it more often but in the context of this conversation and posters brain and in relation to gb news it's really this idea that um because and i think a lot of this has been like accelerated by lockdown but because people are like so exposed to certain figures and certain characters online um and especially like people who are trying to kind of do very active brand building um you know like isabel show but also like many other people that have ended up on uh lbc talk uh, talk radio and gb news um it's very difficult for like but there's no incentive to kind of like present like nuanced opinions or kind of you know takes that are like kind of complicated and challenging because ultimately you're con you're always aware of being watched and you're always aware of like an audience and you're always aware that like in order for you to have this media career you need to have like 
patrons who are willing to support you and they'll only be willing to support you if you kind of lean more and more into particular takes, which is why we've seen like certain situations where formerly respected journalists uh, who like would identify on the right, but would still kind of be very aware of like the like societal fault lines have now kind of become so consumed by what they see online and kind of the way that things are framed online. And I think this is where like the obsession with like wokeness comes from it, like you know it doesn't come from like any sort of organic experience it comes from like viral videos from america that came into the uk and then all of a sudden people becoming obsessed with university students in the uk and what they were doing and it's really like enveloped from there um so it's very difficult for them to actually like realize that life is very complicated and that people don't necessarily think in these like black and white or very linear terms um because they're just exposed to online platforms which kind of encourage people to have specific takes or to kind of like be all in on us on like a specific take in order to kind of get exposure um so that's like a very positive definition and one that may i, I hope that makes sense i don't know if it, it does it, but... it 100 makes sense i mean I, I was just wondering zoe you know one of the things which is always leveled at the left is we live in a online echo chamber Mm. Um, and most of the world that's not where they're at they're not sitting on twitter debating various things which the left get very obsessed with and that critique actually sometimes i mean fine to, to a degree but um isn't the kind of worst example of people getting sucked into an online echo chamber and thinking something big can be made off the back of it is actually gb news which wasn't the left it was the hard right and actually Basically, people spent a bit too much time taking Twitter seriously, thought they saw this energy on Twitter, which could be captured and monetized. And actually, most people just probably want to go and go shopping rather than listen to people just yelling at the television. I mean, there's an, um, I really love that um, definition of poster's brain. There, and there was an interesting comment about how kind of being being your kind of keyboard warrior self um, in, it is a kind of similar drop in your inhibitions to being pissed. But actually, I never get more... I mean, I was just about to say, I never get more annoying when I'm pissed. <laughs> but that's not true. I think it does... I, I don't think it does trigger your brain in the same way as alcohol triggers your brain, I suppose, is what I'm saying. What it does is it really hardens and polarises your view. So whatever your view is it becomes slightly more strident. And then if that kind of accelerates with people, then, you, you know, you get to positions which are really, which are, which are really difficult to row back from. You kind of very easily get into, again, get into a situation where you cannot, where it's impossible for you to find a middle ground. Um, but the, 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 the interesting kind of related to the, the most interesting thing I read, which relates to the echo chamber idea is that the real, the real kind of, um, division in in politics in kind of ele electorates is not between left and right anymore. It's between people who are in who follow it and people who really wish it would go away. <laughs> and that's and you know there's been a lot of work in the UK about how people are much more likely to define themselves now as pro or anti Brexit than they are as left or right wing. And actually, those pro and anti Brexit don't really map that easily onto an, any ideas and any and kind of. Because, you know, anti-Brexit would describe itself as just kind of pro-reason and pro-Brexit would describe itself as kind of pro 
sovereignty and and those and those things then that that apples and pears those things can't meet but in the us where they don't have a brexit of course they the 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 polarization is between interested and not interested and i think we we sort of have to rather than kind of beat ourselves up or be all kind of scoff at the fact that we're in an echo chamber or the right are in an echo chamber it's worth kind of thinking in kind of larger frames in a sense which which aren't left or right but they are kind of you know because i don't think it is that i don't think racism which i think a lot of the gb news stuff was either openly or implicitly racist and that was their main argument they wanted to have for themselves when they weren't talking about masks they were talking about muslims they were talking about taking the knee they were having kind of lots of cipher conversations for am i allowed to be racist um and that was it and and really, we shouldn't think, oh, well, they're very right wing. How do we as the left respond to that right wing? We should be thinking, well, that you know, that's that's just hate. <laughs> that is like open hatred. And that's not a political idea. And that's not an ideology. That's not an ideology, is it? That's not that's not a program. You can't you can't take that anywhere. So I think we should just be a bit more confident in the fact that what we're the side we're on is not the left side in this instance. We're on the side of civilization, and we need to think of it more like that. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Oh, I've lost you again. No, he's on, you're on mute. I'm oh. myself. This oh, is sorry. why I should not run this show by myself. <laughs> this is what happens. Uh, just this doesn't normally happen, but this was things happen today. Um, so having silenced myself, that's I cancelled myself. Yeah, I suppose <laughs> the kind of last thing I want to kind of talk about really is but well the future of it and what it says. So basically what's happened is in this whole cluster um F. UCK, I don't want to get demonetized. Um, is so, for example, John McAndrew, who was the director of programming at GB News, and he was actually, I suppose, something Zoe was talking about before, which was, you know, like he's like a media veteran guy. He obviously has whatever we think of GB News, he, he, he had some sort of journalistic ethos to him. He worked at Sky News, he worked at the BBC, he worked at Euro News. He was the kind of second in command, but he was in charge of programming, and he has resigned. And now Nigel Farage has, with his usual 
um, don't know what to bravado is kind of <laughs> nice way of pointing it, but he's 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 you know he's going to be doing a show every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and what this seems to suggest, what I've been told, is this shows that there's a struggle which was between those at GB News who wanted a news channel with a right-wing twist, basically. It's just like a news channel, but just put a more right-wing editorial slant on things. And those who just want a full-blown culture war-type approach. And that's mm. the side, that's that's the faction that's now winning, which explains why John McAndrew, who I would imagine is obviously very firmly right of centre, that thinks journalism must have these standards. They're out, and the people on the up are like, woke bash woke bash that's the way to galvanize so maybe now who knows may i did say it's my show on this three four weeks ago maybe we this show will look ridiculous with gb news flowing um but maybe like that, that'll work and you know they'll get all these big viral clips and everyone will start watching gb news on the right because it's so angry what do you think he's saying do you what is nigel flowers someone said it's uh, as as one of the commenters said yeah. Um, it was Fox. He said it was a, a rat uh, climbing on a sinking ship. Is that true, or will it give it a yeah? Rejuvenate? I don't. I I don't see. I understand why they're doing it. And again, I think it's very much like playing the hits because they kind of know that it works. But what it reminds me a lot of was RT when they set up in the UK. And I think yeah. there are a lot of very similar like parallels between the two because RT UK also started out as a channel that really wanted to be like an Al Jazeera or a TRT. Um, you know, they had a slant, they had like definite like biases. Um, they weren't, they were always going to like tell you about those biases, but they wanted to be like a somewhat semi-serious news channel. They hired a lot of like professional reporters and producers and people like that. And eventually they kind of realized that like the things that were working for that sort of section were not the very expensive, um, you know, journalism that they were trying to do it was really just like reappropriating stories that they got from right-wing newspapers it was um reporting on viral videos and trying to kind of expand them and also like you know giving people giving people with like these massive audience online audiences uh for example people like george galloway i think there were a couple of others as well although i haven't seen channel in some time um giving them their own shows on the basis that their online audience would translate to a tv audience and the thing is it never did like some of the audience would kind of like tune in but actually what they realized um you know both on both like on both these channels was that the online audience is very different to a tv audience and that and i think the key part of that is participation um you know this is an audience that wants to participate in the culture war so you know it's one reason why like when you tweet when Owen, when you tweet something like i you know everyone you'll you know and like everyone else knows you'll get this deluge of comments about people like people like making fun of you or trying to kind of like insult you and stuff because the thrill is not in kind of like the consumption of content it's in the participation of it yeah, yeah, right yeah. it's the idea that like you're a soldier in the culture war and people should wear like a special like poppy with a twitter symbol um to celebrate you as a soldier in this culture war. they don't want to kind of consume it and i think this is the mistake that gb news is walking into they're trying to kind of chase numbers and they're trying to like chase an existing audience but that audience Audience has very different desires to an audience uh, for TV. So I think what will happen is that you might see like a like a uh, like a spike in um, Nigel Farage's show, maybe for the first kind of couple of weeks, but eventually it will pl plateau, especially when what people realize is, and especially with like things like Ofcom rules and everything, that he can't be as incendiary on TV as he can be on Twitter, and therefore he can't be as entertaining on, t on TV as he can be online. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, what do you yeah. think, Zoe, on that? 
I just need to say one thing because somebody in the comments did point out that racism is an ideology and that was a really dumb thing to say. <laughs> I don't mean racism isn't an ideology in the sense that it that it has an informed movements. I just mean that it's not an ideology you need to kind of incorporate into your scheme of what you're for and against because it's like really obvious that you know it, it, it has no kind of political fruit. But um anyway, I'm sorry, I misspoke. <laughs> um you know, on the it, I'm, it's really interesting the the RT thing because that there was there was if you think back to the middle of austerity there was a de definite point in RT where they were the only people interviewing Danny Dawling for instance you know so he'd he'd bring a book out describing really describing the kind of direction of travel if austerity continued in very stark terms and nobody else would interview him. Um, and it was weird, you know, he'd get a kind of, he'd get a platform in the RSA, which is a members only, the Royal Society for Arts, a members only central London um, speech venue. And then he'd get an interview with um, RT and that would be, that would be the only press he did around a book that was really important. And incidentally, obviously everything he said did come to pass. And there was a huge social fracture as a result of, so, so there was, there was definitely, what I think the, the point is that it started out as a kind of as a kind of backdoor critique. It wanted to be a news channel like Al Jazeera, yes, and have that kind of reach and that kind of power. And it didn't have, it didn't want to put the money in, but it also wanted to be a kind of outsider's space, um, and it did get kind of co opted into the yeah. kind of outside and into the wrong kind of outsider, if you like. Um, yeah. And I think there's something interesting in that that you get, whenever anything starts as an outsider's space. It, it it's very important to the new right to paint themselves as outsiders to such a degree that they're the only people allowed in the outsider space. And yeah. that is something for, for us all to think about in a way. It's like, what what do we, you know, do we want to get into the outsider space ourselves so that we're, so that they're at least balanced? Or do we want to say that kind of notion of a place where, where people go to say the things that can't be said is inherently you know for Nigel Farage and there is inherently nothing that we have to add to that hmm. so you said you wanted to add something to that I think or you just yeah I mean well, like, very vigorously yeah no I because I, I I was just worried that people would kind of think that I was saying that RT and GB News were like the same thing and I don't think that or I think like and Zoe was like very right about kind of how one of the big appeals about RT as a TV channel and like one of the reasons why it was like they set up a UK base was because they knew that they could occupy a kind of outsider status, which I think did very much exist. Like there is a lot of kind of, there are a lot of like very interesting interviews and shows that are really valuable. And when you look back on them, they were like very much ahead of the time um, where compared to other like news channels in like the mid 2010s and during in the peak of austerity. But the thing that I think is really crucial in the similarity is how they're, you know, GB News is also trying to frame itself as like the outsider insurgent channel. Andrew Neil, like in his Andrew Neil in his posts uh, about the GB News viewings, is like, yeah, we're a startup, and like you know, we're a scrappy startup, and these mistakes happen, um, you know, but we're going to be like back on top pretty soon, so like don't worry about that. Um, so he's still trying to frame himself, and also like all his like uh, all the hosts like are trying to frame themselves as outsiders. But as we mentioned earlier in the show, like they're the furthest thing from it. They had like immediate access to government from the outset they had like interviews with ministers from the outset things that established journalists like really struggle to kind of do especially like in like the current uh with the current british government like so they can't really play the outsider card and i think for a lot of people 
um, who were able, who were willing to entertain them, uh, were, were willing to entertain GB News as um, you know this uh, outsider that was willing to challenge institutions like the BBC. I think even they've kind of been show, they've kind of had to accept that actually maybe they're just a very poorly executed channel um, that like just did not take advantage of all the advantages that they had going into it. Guys, this has been brilliant. I I will let you now. I think. Because it is very, very sunny and warm outside. <laughs> um, but that was that was brilliant. I've absolutely, absolutely fascinating discussion. I learned a huge amount. I'm sure everyone else did as well. And it is, it is again. Look, it is a fun thing to talk about because it is obviously very funny. But there are very serious topics which arise from it, which tell us about wider social and political forces, and that's what we talked about as well as having a bit of fun. So thank you both uh, a huge amount. I really appreciate it. And I'll let you both just, just go and have some fun. <laughs> Lovely to see you. Lots of love, guys. Speak to you thank soon. You much. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. They are both brilliant. Um, I've not finished with you guys, so don't you don't you just, just vanish. Um, just a couple of things. Where, what am I going to do? Yes, okay, I know. I'm just going to add... I mean, I only responded to this on Twitter... Um, but it was, I think, again, it's one of these things which is quite funny, but quite telling, um, which is an interview which Jess Phillips did uh, with The Times. She often do, she often has these puff pieces done um, in the Murdoch-owned right-wing media, The Times. I can't, I've lost count of how many puff pieces she's had in that particular. It's not really an interview. It's someone serenading her with praise, but... That's how the that's how the world works, guys. Um, so there was a few, there was what she said. Uh, well, there was a, there was a couple of things that annoyed me actually. One thing that actually did annoy me, genuinely, was she said she's lost three stone, which is great, by the way. I've lost two and a half stone. The reason it annoyed me is I want to know how she's gone about that, um, because she says she's on a strict one thousand calories a day in the week. I a day I, I don't I don't recommend doing that. I haven't done that. Um, I've done lots of exercise and quite out drinking during the week. Um, but one of the things I have done is I do eat a lot less sugar. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is she said she compares activist journalist Owen Jones and Navarra media writers to noisy, overexcited children who have had too much sugar. Who cares what they think, frankly? Um, yeah, I, do, I don't eat that much sugar anymore, to be fair. I think one of the things I'm interested in, I mean, I mean, it was it was interesting, I think, again, in, in terms of some of the things I think it it says. Um, I mean, partly it's the traditional trope, I suppose, of, you know, we're the so-called grown-ups in the room, as in the Jess Phillips faction, uh, and to infantilize the left. The left are childish dreamers, they're not in the real world. We're the real grown-ups, and we understand how politics works. Um, and I suppose it's unfortunate that particular trope because the politics is polarized in Britain to an unprecedented degree. I do speak a lot about this on the show because it's it's just quite interesting. It's quite an interesting kind of political phenomenon, which is political polarization by age, which is a very new phenomenon because um, it didn't used to be the case at all. Margaret Thatcher, as I always say, she won the youth vote in 1983. In 2017 and 2019, 
Labour won more younger voters than they've ever won in the history of democracy. Unfortunately, they won less older voters than ever. And older voters make up, pensioners make up a quarter of the electorate. Boy, do they vote in, in large numbers. But I suppose it's unfortunate, but revealing, maybe unconscious, maybe it was not intentional, but we often say things which reveal things we think. Which is a lot of... Whatever the faults have got, look, I wrote an entire book looking at Corbynism, including its faults as well as up, up against. I'm sometimes caricatured by all sorts of people as just an unthinking Corbyn, dogmatic, factional loyalist. I think those who would regard them, you know, some, some people would find that on the other side quite, actually quite amusing and, and untrue in an annoying way. But, you know, what is true about some of the political reactions to Corbynism is because it attracted an unprecedented younger cohort of people. It was framed by a lot of people who were either, and I'm I'm going to be very clear with my words here because not all older people, lots of older people, my mum included, are passionate lifelong socialists. She's nearly she's nearly seventy. I'm sure she won't mind me saying that. Um, and there are younger people who are conservatives. You can see they're working for GB News. Um, but at the same time, obviously, there is that age polarisation. But certain kind of older people, maybe, you know, middle-aged plus, saw Corbynism as basically these quite naive, snowflakey, woke, maybe quite dangerous in some ways, younger people, kind of the barbarians banging at the gates, because there is such a generational divide in politics. When actually what was really happening is, of course, you know, it's not like, unfortunately for me, younger people all became ideologically committed socialists. Most people aren't ideologically committed to anything in this country or most countries. Um, but younger people suffered economic consequences of what I would call neoliberalism, a housing crisis, home ownership collapse, driven into an unregulated private rented sector, insecure jobs, living standards fell, the public services they most depended on cut, their youth services decimated when they were younger. Uh, you know, when they were growing up uh, under Tory rule, cuts to social security would hit their parents and therefore them, often in precarious kind of, you know, delivery style jobs um, and socially progressive on issues like LGBTQ rights, trans rights being quite a striking one, immigration, multiculturalism, anti-racism. And they fused together and that just happened to find a political home in Corbynism. And actually a lot of the anger manifested itself there for older people with this, you know, these, this is a movement driven by these either hopelessly naive or dangerously naive younger people. So I suppose the other point when she says, um, who cares what they think, frankly, I suppose what I find interesting about that is some, and I don't just mean myself, and this is why it's not about me, because actually Ash Sarkar on Twitter made, I thought, quite an astute point about this earlier on, because I'm sometimes, some of my critics, so-called centrists, will say um, that I'm irrelevant, who cares what he thinks, rah, 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 rah. And they'll also act as though I'm a almost this omnipotent political deity who has the power to destroy the Labour Party and the Labour Party's prospects. So if I tweet bad things about, if I tweet just critically about the Labour leadership's failures, they were like, you're destroying the Labour Party as those swing voters are sitting around watching my Twitter feed. You know, the a, a classic example as well, that recently the, the uh, 
Batley and Spend by-election, where, like the BBC, I interviewed George Galloway as one of the main candidates. You can't not do that because, obviously, large Muslim disaffection in that in that constituency found a political home in George Galloway's candidacy. Um, and George Galloway, someone I despise politically and actually personally uh, as well, if for that matter. You can see a video on my channel called uh, George Galloway is an enemy of the left, which I think the title is pretty self-explanatory. But there's this whole truth thing amongst the Labour MPs who keep attacking me, claiming that I essentially support George Galloway and campaign for him. And these are people who would say, well, actually, the extremes of politics are both guilty of misinformation, and that's destroying democracy and undermining our democracy and destroying the political system. But they're quite happy to do that against the left because no one in their right mind could ever think that I support George Galloway. Uh, and I said over and over again, I would support the Labour candidate in that constituency, which is I would because I've only ever supported the Labour Party to the chagrin of some on the left in my entire life. I joined the party when I was 15 and Tony Blair happened to be leader at the time. But the point Ash made, Ash Sarkar, she said, because I was like, I said, you know, some of them know I'm not consequential in the grand scheme of things, but pretend I am for political purposes. Others have deluded themselves into thinking I'm an all-powerful, nefarious political deity in all cases. Is it's, it's exhausting. And she said, I just think it betrays an anxiety over who's listening to you and Navara, because she attacked Navara, and why. It's not really about you as a person, indeed, they etc. And I think that's the point. It is still the case, despite their triumphalism, because they are the political masters of the Labour Party now, and their triumphalism, it, what they regarded as this long five-decade nightmare, where five-decade, five-year, half-a-decade nightmare in which the left was in charge of the Labour Party, though often very precariously, it should be said, and, and they were driven into political exile. And this was a total nightmare. And they didn't actually know if they would ever be able to get their party back as they saw it. Um, and then they did. And they feel triumphant about it. But their lingering, correct and justified insecurity is those younger people haven't gone away. They can't magic them away. They can't magic away the fact that under 40, you have these massive, all-defining economic and social insecurities, housing, jobs, living standards, public services, welfare state, which have huge consequences for younger people. Or the fact, as articles of faith, on issues of um, minority rights, these these which, which are very dear to many, many young people in this country. That can't be magic to wait. It's a structural issue. And the fact the left in this generation, in this iteration, unlike the early 80s, draws its strength overwhelmingly from that younger generation for structural reasons. And many of those equivalent younger people were supporting Margaret Thatcher in the early 80s. That's what gives them this in insecurity. So they will flip between you're irrelevant, by which they mean you people, we are driving you out of the Labour Party and we're going to smash you and we're going to do everything we can to make sure you never have any political influence within the Labour Party. But they flip between that and their terror at the fact that they don't have political hegemony amongst younger people, and I would say many minorities. And the point about that is, in the last two by-elections, what that showed was the, the, the mission, or one of the mission statements of Keir Starmer was to win over new voters. But they haven't done that. They've gone... They've done the opposite. They haven't won over new voters. They're just losing voters who voted for Labour in 2017. Despite the attempt to erase that from history, Labour did win 40% of the vote. That wasn't enough. Obviously, the electorate had polarised, but 40% did vote for the Labour Party. And so in both 
Hartlepool, which Labour won in 2017 and 2019, in 2017 over half the vote, same in Batley and Spen. Both those seats where Batley and Spen, they narrowly kept onto it, they've gone backwards. They are losing, in the case of Hartlepool, they lost Muslim voters overwhelmingly, 86% of whom voted Labour in 2019. So now their terror is they thought they were the grown-ups in the room and everything was going to fall into place because they were self-evidently, you know, they were these were the grown-ups. They understood how politics works. Everything would fit into place. That hasn't happened. Instead, it's fallen apart pretty catastrophically. And Labour, if there was an election now, would lose dozens of seats compared to its 2019 rout, which we all agree was a rout. And that's because they have alienated people who voted for Labour in 2017 and 2019 without winning new people over. And that anger, ang the anger at that, you know, their frustration at that manifests itself at particular targets, myself, Navarra, not because I'm afraid to say I am unfortunately not an all-powerful political deity, but because it's seen as a totemic, you know, was seen as totemic in terms of these are these really unreasonable younger people who just will not get with a program, as well as these minorities who they briefed against. They literally briefed against Muslims en masse by saying after both before and after the Batley by-election, they didn't need those voters because they were going to win over white Tory voters instead. I just think that's very interesting anyway, because I think that's what's really going on. It's not about me and whether or not I am an overexcited, irrelevant child who eats too much sugar, but it's it's about their insecurities about a political project that has failed on its own terms very badly, um, the reasons for that, and the fact that they cannot magic away the structural reasons for why the left got its strength in the first place, which is the same reason Bernie Sanders drew his strength in America. It's the same reason Podemos drew their strength in Spain. It's the same reason why the two left parties in Portugal drew their strength as well. Because if you leave younger people in an economy lacking security and they have progressive social opinions, then you can't. You either have to cater for that somehow or you're going to piss them off. So I think that's quite interesting. David Baratta says, you're the bogeyman of the centrists. I don't know how anyone can make a gamut turn purple the way I do. Yeah, I mean, some of the, I have to say, I, I get so bored of it because I'm just not, I'm not actually that interesting. I'm just, at the end of the gay, gay, day, I'm just some slightly nerdy gay guy who's left wing, likes hanging out with my friends, very tedious. Corey, thank, oh, that's Corey, thank you for that. There was another question somewhere. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, I can't put it on screen for some reason. Michael Lafferty, I'll be honest, I'm an openly proud bisexual Tory, but I have to admit, well, my, oh, wow, no, that's just someone saying I'm cute. That's very sweet of you. And now it looks like I've made it up because I can't put it on screen and I just started naively reading it out. Oh, here we go. I'll put it on just to show that I haven't just made that up. Um, thank you to everybody. Oh, before I do leave, I do want to do one other thing, which is very, very, very important. Um, let me just, because as I said, I'm flying blind today. And thank you for bearing me with me without a producer, which is what I normally do. I want to speak um, about something which I, which everyone on the British left is, uh, extremely, obviously, very sad and shocked about, which was uh, the death of our friend and comrade, uh, Dawn Foster. Um, Dawn is someone I have known for the best part of a decade. She was my colleague at The Guardian for a long time. And she's someone I spent time with, say, similar social circles often, but also on you know, panels, events. And she died after a long illness um, a few days ago. And, you know, it's so important that 
you know, when we lose people like that, it's it's so important that we remember their impact and their legacy, and it redoubles our commitment to carry on the sort of work they would want other, wanted us to do. And Dawn was a particularly courageous journalist. She was somebody who was not afraid or scared of speaking the truth as she saw it, regardless of who it would offend or anger or whatever. She didn't give two shits, I suppose, is one way of putting it. Um, And, you know, a famous example of that was her last ever article for The Guardian in which she did a splendidly written uh, takedown of Tom Watson, which boiled all of the piss you can imagine. Um, and it was a it was a brilliant piece, which which uh, trended again um, following her death, which I think she would have been very amused about. And, you know, she was somebody, whether it be the housing crisis, she was very passionate about writing about the housing crisis. She was there, and I remember this, her brilliant reporting from the site of Grenfell Tower. I know she spoke very publicly about the emotional toll that took for anyone reporting that, but she did brilliant reporting and she was passionately committed to giving a platform to voices that aren't otherwise heard. Now, Dawn was from, unlike most of the media, which is one of the most privileged, um, uh, you know, privileged industries um, in, in, in the country, in terms of, if you look at, the background of people who work in the British media uh, is second only to medicine, according to the government statistics. Now, Dawn was from a, a working class background of a sort, which is driven out of the British media. And the fact is we, we just don't have voices like Dawn. It's just, we just don't, you know, I just actually her loss. I'm trying to think of someone who's equivalent with her platform. We don't have that person. It's you know it's a it's a tragedy on a on a on a personal level and my love my endless love obviously particularly with those who are who are particularly close friends including some of my friends who were who were particularly close to her and obviously this is a devastating time but what we do in the aftermath of these horrible horrible events is we we double our commitment things this is. It's been a difficult time. You know, the last period of her life was when the left, she saw the left suffer pretty severe defeats. And sometimes it feels incredibly difficult and hard. You're swimming against a very strong tide and you're up against people who have huge institutional power. And, you know, they call it a struggle, not not a walkover. And, you know, we do, I always say this, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We are a collective struggle. That's how we understand. That's our theory of change. Not great men or women or individuals alone doing wonderful acts and that changes the world, but people fighting together. And one of those soldiers on the front line was was Don Foster. And, uh, you know, we were sometimes in the trenches together. And there will be really hard times to come. Things are not going to be easy, but we need the same courage and determination that Dawn showed throughout her all too short life. And that's what I hope everyone will do in her memory. Uh, That is enough from me. Uh, Lots of love to everybody. Thank you so much for for watching this. It's been a big honour. I'll just answer quickly. There's a last question here. Good day, Owen. That was a terrible attempt by an Australian. I didn't do an Australian accent. I won't even try it. In Australia, our citizens can't return from overseas. Yet Katie Hopkins was allowed in to appear in Big Brother, then got sacked for making a video 
mocking quarantine thoughts. But I try to avoid just talking about Katie Hopkins because she, uh, you know, she was, let's not forget, she had a column in the Sun newspaper where she whipped up racist hatred against migrants, called them cockroaches, uh, and the Mail Online and LBC. She wasn't just a random troll. She was created by the mainstream media and she got this huge platform and you know what? She was just actually much. It's not like, oh, well, she's this awful troll. And what, you know, now she got, she was taken out of the media. The mainstream media, she was just the more honest, undiluted version of a media which all too often whips up hatred against migrants, against Muslims, against refugees, against trans people, which is a kind of horrendous sport much of the media have bought into, not just on the right. And, uh, you know, she was a monster created by that ecosystem. Um, and, you know, obviously it's extremely aggravating for Australians to watch her being, you know, get somehow any, and, and the fact she was even going to be on Big Brother anyway is just an affront. And the fact she's been taken off, well, good. Um, but my own view is, you know, she is a racist troll, but there's so many other racist trolls uh, like her. She was finally taken off LBC because she uh, called uh, for a final solution to Muslims. Um, she was taken off Twitter belatedly. She doesn't deserve, obviously, a platform of any description. There's no human right to a platform. Um, but equally, let's look at so much of our media ecosystem and how racist and bigoted they are, and they get away with it on a daily basis. And then some of them go, well, Katie Hopkins, we agree, is terrible, as they churn out much of the same stuff as her. Anyway, um, just, just before I finish, and again, thanks, everyone, for allowing me to do the show by myself, flying blind, as I've said, but my brilliant guest allowed me uh, to do that. Um, this week we have some brilliant, brilliant guests. We've got a brilliant guest tell, talking about why the Afghanistan, uh, the, the, the US uh, defeating the Afghan war in Afghanistan, um, and just looking at what's actually happened there. We've got, um, brilliant guests, including Alison Pollock dissecting the privatization of the NHS, the new bill that's up. Very important. We talk about that at length. Um, we, uh, are interviewing George Monbiot, my brilliant colleague, um, we also have a very interesting video coming up about how Hollywood um, collaborates with the Pentagon, believe it or not, to make films and uses these films as basically propaganda for the US war machine. Really interesting stuff. Uh, we are going to do this documentary we're planning, as I've said, on uh, land, on who owns Britain, both urban and rural. It'll be really interesting. So um, do tune in for that. All the people today, I'm going to read through everyone who supported us, John McKenzie, Tudor Campwell, Attila Desix, Foxy, Stephen Calder, Rachel McGowan, Nickelodeon, TBC, Red Light Max, Michael Lafferty, all of those people, thank you so, so much. But on Patreon as well, everyone supporting us on patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84. Oh, sorry, Corey Longme, don't forget that. Uh, let me put that up. There we go. Um, on patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84, the reason things normally are much smoother than that is because there's a brilliant team that actually do this rather than uh, me doing my best. Um, but uh, you, you enable us to do those documentaries, those videos, which always do so well, both on YouTube and on Facebook. Um, and we have a brilliant team on Union Wages, thanks to you. Um, we're not GB News. We're not funded by multimillionaires. And we don't have some vast team and all the rest of it. Uh, we just have you. <laughs> you. You keep this going. So thank you so, so much to all of you. Um, it's been a massive honor, as I've said. Thank you so much to our, my brilliant guests, uh, Zoe and Hussein. I am now myself going to enjoy some of the sun. I think we deserve it after the time we've had. Uh, lots and lots of love, everybody. Look after yourselves. And as ever, 
It's been an honor. Take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.